information. There's just not a whole lot of information about Cornelius. Uh, there's a whole lot of speculation, and if you want to believe what all the historians say or what everybody else that thinks they understand, uh, even though no one else seems to agree with them, then there's a whole lot of information about them. Uh, but in our case, we have to uh, kind of take what we've been given uh, to, to work with. Uh, so if we look at, <clears throat> if we look at uh, Cornelius, he is a, um, he's a centurion. Uh, centurion is a, is a captain, or the, in our terms would be the equivalent of a lieutenant uh, that has a hundred of their elite uh, Italian regiment uh, assigned to him. Uh, he's tough. He's a skilled warrior. Uh, the uh, different than some of the, the most of the uh, military today. If you were going to be promoted, and you, you promote because you fight better than everybody else, and then you are the one who leads uh, the, the the battalion or the group forward. If you remember, uh, when David wanted to kill Uzzah, uh, the the husband of his um, of Bathsheba, uh, he had them charge and then quickly retreat, which left us alone. As one of the leaders, it left him alone in the battlefront, so he was killed. That was murder by army, but that's what David did. And so people who, are, uh, people who were uh, advanced in their military career were highly successful uh, as fighters and as warriors, not as politicians. They were, <clears throat> he was managing a, an occupying force, uh, that means that they were there to police and keep peace in a very uh, uh, obstinate and difficult uh, group of people. Israel never was one that got along with, uh, with anybody, much less someone who was occupying them. There was nothing weak about him. He was a strong man. He was strong-minded. He was very decision-oriented. That's the nature of who he was. That's the nature of his position. Uh, he stands, uh, you can see him in the way he talks, the way he deals with things, that he is a military man, and there's nothing about him that is uh, laid back, that's, that's weak, that seems to be something where he would be uh, a pushover. Uh, and, and yet he's very well thought of among the Jews, which is not that common for the Romans, a Roman, um, uh, someone in the Roman army to be well thought of at all. So this is a very unique situation. Uh, you've probably not seen this until, except for since this morning. Uh, for, for all of you that were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free person. There is not male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant and heirs according to the promise. And that last sentence is what I'd like for us to spend some time looking at uh, some, in some time some amount of time today. Uh, in Christ, there's no difference between being a Jew and being a Greek. Uh, there's no difference between slave or free. There's no male or female difference. That's not the way it was in the old, under the, the old law. Under the old law, there were different provisions for uh, those that were Jews and those that were Greeks. Even if the Greek was a, a proselyte, one that had become uh, a Jew religiously, the, uh, the slave man and the freed man were not the same. They didn't have the same rights. They didn't uh, have the same expectations. Uh, the same thing with male and female. There were different, there were different laws. There were different requirements uh, that, were, that were done. So the fact that there's no difference in Christ is something that would be radically different. 
And in fact, we, we see in some, uh, some of the epistles where there's warnings for the women to behave a certain way because all of a sudden now they have freedom. All of a sudden they don't have this law that restricts them as much as they had been before. So we'll see that there's a difference there. Uh, but in Christ, we are baptized into Christ. Uh, we belong to Christ as his servant. We are submitting ourselves to him. Uh, and as such... We are Abraham's descendants. We are heirs according to the promise. This, the first time I remember reading this passage that I actually understood it, uh, I couldn't really explain why I was really kind of thrilled about this. I guess maybe because I felt like uh, I was a Gentile and I was a second-class Christian or something. I'm not sure why I felt that way. But when I saw this, I was excited and impressed that I was an, a descendant of Abraham. Again, I'm not sure exactly why, but at least uh, that is a distinction between anything that we might have had at all. So God promises Abraham. We look at the promise that, that we, are, we have this position, we are heirs according to the promise. The promise that we look at is the, the promises to Abraham. He was given four, God made four promises to Abraham, a great nation, a, 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 the, we call it the seed promise that all nations will be blessed, a land promise, and then the one that we tend to forget is blessing and curses. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you. We, um, I, I thought of the, I, I thought of the, um, of the story of who Mel, Melchizedek was. Melchizedek um, was the son, excuse me, Methuselah. Methuselah was the son of Enoch and the grandfather of Noah. And we remember uh, who Methuselah is because of why. He's the oldest guy that we don't have a record of. And it's interesting because his name basically means the dart is thrown or the, have, or the javelin has been thrown. And so it's, it's interesting that from the time that he lives until the time that he dies, he dies in the same year of the flood. And so Melchizedek, excuse me, I keep doing that, uh, Methuselah is... Um, is almost a timeline, it seems, as to how patient God is going to be before he destroys uh, the world with, with, uh, with water. So in looking at that, I look at the seed promise, and in the seed promise, I see possibly another dart being thrown, uh, the dart being thrown to the, at the cross. And at the cross, we see the, the promise now becoming real, being becoming real uh, as far as it's no longer in the future, it now is here. At the same time, I think it also at least uh, is in the general direction, if not also thrown at, Corne at Cornelius. So it's interesting to see that when, al when all these uh, promises were made to Abraham, that he never saw any of them, and yet he never lost faith. He, it was 645 years that the great nation was, was fulfilled from the time that the promise was made to Abraham the, for the first time. Um, that's when they came out of Egypt. 215 years between when Joseph actually went down into, uh, is, into Egypt and 430 years before they came back out. The seed promise, all nations will be blessed, and in, in the number of cases when we see all nations, we also will see a different translation that we render that Gentiles. Uh, because it's people other than and including, uh, but other than the Jews. Um, the salvation 
uh, to the Jew and to the Gentile, again, all nations would be blessed. The land promise was fulfilled uh, 685 years later when they entered Canaan. And then the blessing and cursing uh, promise is there throughout. <clears throat> Abraham had two sons. Abraham had uh, the son of promise, which was Isaac, and then he had Ishmael. Ishmael is the, um, is the son that Abraham and Sarah decided they were going to help God out. They were going to help God out because they're too old. They know that God had prophesied and told them that, that she was going to have a child, and she was reprimanded because even though she was listening inside the tent, they could hear her laughing. That here she was at uh, almost 90 years old in that range, and she's going to have a, a child. But she was reprimanded for that, and they decided, well, this is something we'll have to do. I'll take my, I'll take my uh, servant, my slave, and we'll, we'll have a child through uh, Hagar, and that will be the, the son of promise. God didn't accept that. God uh, allowed and caused um, uh, her to be, Sarah to be uh, pregnant with, with um, uh, Isaac. So Isaac was the, the, the son that uh, was the heir that was promised. Uh, he was also restated that the promise of the nation, the promise of the land, the promise of the seed. Uh, and even though Ishmael was, was thrown out of the, uh, of the camp, and uh, if you read the story, uh, Hagar believes that, that she, uh, she, she put Ishmael off under a bush and went off a ways because she couldn't stand to see him die because they're in the desert and they didn't have any provisions that would last any period of time. So he, they were shunned, and, and because of that, uh, and because of, her, um, of God's grace, uh, he said that he would make a nation of Ishmael, that he would multiply him greatly, that he would have sons would be 12 princes, and uh, he would make him fruitful. That's not the same promises. It's not a duplication of the promises that he had of, for Isaac. He was not going to be uh, the one that, that, that was the seed uh, by which all, all would be blessed. Now I'm going to talk about Melchizedek. I know you're waiting for it. It was subliminal. Uh, God had, we, we see occasions, the Bible, especially the Old Testament, is, a, is not a history book. Uh, it is not um, a broad uh, collection of history based upon um, the area and all the different nations that were within it. It, in effect, tells the story and the lineage that starts from the very beginning all the way through the Israelites Till we, till, we, till we find Jesus. That's, that's the thread that we follow. Um, and, and so there's, there's a very limited amount of information that we see of what happens elsewhere. But we do find a, a few occasions where God is talking to and people know about God uh, and they are not Jews. We find a few instances of that. So just the fact that someone was not a Jew doesn't necessarily mean that, um, that God does not know who they are or they do not know who God is. Melchizedek is the king of Salem, priest of God, and there's one other notable thing that, that happened. Abraham paid tithes to him. And so one of the arguments that you have uh, in, in looking at Abraham, at Christ being, uh, being more superior than, than Abraham, is that Abraham 
would, that no one would pay tithes to someone that was inferior to them. So he, he, the argument is that Abraham, by giving tithes to Melchizedek, said that he was subordinate to or lesser than Melchizedek. He was not a Jew. This is before their word was a nation of Jews. Jethro is the father-in-law of Moses, and he's a priest in Midian, and he's a priest of the true God in Midian. And we don't know anything about him much except for that. We see a few instances here and there where uh, he shows up and maybe gives some advice, or, but we just have very, very little in insight into who he is. Nebuchadnezzar uh, worshipped God, but for a totally different reason. Because God put him out to pasture, literally. Nebuchadnezzar was so arrogant with himself and so full of himself that God said, all right. And for seven years, he lived like a beast out in the field. And he, he, he lived like, a, he lived like a, a cow or a, whatever else it might be on the field, eating grass. And he literally was put out to feed. And so put out to pasture. And after seven years, God gave him his mind back and he all of a sudden thought it was a really good idea to not challenge God. He really thought that he'd learned his lesson and he was very humble. And he also thought that God was someone that he really should be worshiping because he was put in his place. Uh, we see in, in, the, uh, in the book of, of Jonah that um, Jonah runs away not because he was afraid, not because he got lost, not because of, of those reasons, Jonah runs away instead of going to preach in Nineveh. He tells us at the end of this is that I didn't want to go because I knew you would forgive them. Now, Nineveh was in Assyria. Assyria, those of you that are Lord of the Rings fans, they're the orcs. Of, uh, they, were, they were completely um, barbaric. They were uncivilized. They were the meanest and ugliest people that you could imagine. And they destroyed people rather than just conquering them. And so for a Jew to be told to go to Nineveh and preach repentance, uh, you'd think that maybe that would be a good thing because you'd, you'd hope they wouldn't. But he said, I know you, God, and I know you're going to accept their, their, their repentance, which they did. I don't understand this. I don't understand why, they, why a single man walking through saying repent or die would compel an Assyrian city to repent. We don't have any information about that. But apparently they knew something about God. Now we know that all the nations around saw the, the God of Israel. They saw either firsthand as they lost battles, when they shouldn't have lost battles in their minds. Uh, we saw, uh, they see so many different evidences of who, uh, of how God has, has exerted himself with the Israelites that all of them were aware of that God, but they didn't necessarily, to our knowledge, none of them really chose to, uh, to give any credence to him at all. Interestingly enough, Rahab was not a Jew, and yet we find her in the lineage of Christ. If you remember, she's the one that hid the, the spies when they were going to spy out Jericho, and uh, they were, she was told to put uh, a red, I think a ribbon or a cloth out the window, and when all the, the walls caved in, everything except where she was caved in. And somehow or another, she ended up being uh, in the lineage of Christ, and so obviously someone there must have, uh, must have made her and uh, married her or made her either that or a proselyte. 
prophecies that the that the um, the Gentiles would be saved. You look at Hosea, and this is all, this is deliberately in the Old Testament only. Hosea, I will show my love to the one I called not my loved one. I will say to those called not my people, you are my people. And they will say, you are my God. That doesn't make a lot of sense looking at it back there when they're talking. But looking at it from our perspective and recognizing now that we have uh, Gentiles being called upon and being saved through, the, through Jesus Christ, we see that, that God is going to abandon uh, the, ex- the exclusivity of uh, the Israelites as his chosen people. Isaiah 42, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one, in him my soul delights. I put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Again, this, is, this has got to stick out really as a strange thing to be, for, for Isaiah to have said, uh, considering that they were told to avoid the Gentiles, they were to have nothing to do with it, they were basically to think nothing of the Gentiles. And last, I reveal myself to those who did not ask for me, I was found by those who did not seek me, to a nation that did not call my name. I said, here I am, here I am. All day long I have held up my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations, a people who constantly provoke me to my very face. Not a complimentary thing to say about the, about the Israelites, but how many times does, does he have the right and does he actually use this kind of language to describe the way the Israelites uh, disobeyed and disregarded God? As we look through the story of, of Cornelius, we know the story uh, fairly, uh, fairly well. We've reviewed some of the aspects of this over the last uh, month or so of going through this. But Cornelius has a vision, and that vision is that he... Uh, and he, he talked to an angel who, remember the man who is, has no reason to be afraid? He was afraid of the angel. And the angel uh, told him, commanded him to go send for Peter, and he'll tell you what you must do. Peter has a vision, and Peter's vision is uh, one that, that he finds highly conflicting because it tells him to eat things that he's never, ever supposed to eat. As a good Jew, he would never consider it. Put yourself in the same situation where if all of a sudden we have a vision or someone here has a vision and we're told that we're supposed to use prostitution in our worship. That's what the, hedon, the, the hedonists did. That's what the idolaters did. How comfortable would we be, how realistic would we think that is if we were told to use prostitutes as part of our worship? It was a sin. It would have been against everything we would have thought about. And eating of these unclean meats would have been also a sin that would separate them uh, from God. But so Peter objects until um, he's told that he, um, he will not challenge this and he'll do what he's told. Uh, the Spirit instructs Peter then that people are coming to see him and, they're, and he's supposed to go with them. Uh, and these are the men that uh, were sent by Cornelius. Peter arrives at Cornelius' house and not only is it Cornelius... But he had not only his family, but he has friends and others, including slaves and, and other people. He has a full house waiting to see Peter and listen to what he has to say. Uh, he, this, this man that is, um, that is a warrior is on his knees uh, bowing before Peter uh, out, out of humility to ask whatever it would be. And, of course, Peter corrects him and tells him, get up. I'm just a man like you are. But here's a man that 
has no reason to apologize for anything, and yet he understands as someone who is in authority and someone who reports to authority that uh, he, understands, he understands God. He prays to God. He respects God. And an emissary that comes to him from God deserves all of his respect. And so he, uh, he, he conducts himself in a way that you wouldn't expect uh, a centurion to do so. Uh, he, he explains uh, why, he, why Peter was called, recounts the appearance of the angel, and then the, they and their household were ready to hear uh, all things commanded to you by God. So they didn't say, we want to hear what you have to say. They expected to be commanded, and they expected that they were going to obey it. The sermon that Cornelius and uh, sermon to Cornelius at his house, he explains, and obviously I think we just have a very short synopsis of that sermon, but he basically says that God shows no partiality. We talked about that there's no difference between Jew and, Gent and Gentiles or Greeks. There's no difference between male, male and female. Uh, he, he has no partiality, and, and this is a very important thing because this is the first time. Peter's not even supposed to be in this house. It's against the law, the Jewish law, for him to enter into and have and consort with Gentiles. And yet he's doing it anyway. And like many times in, in prophecy, the prophet doesn't necessarily understand what he's been told. And so we see uh, that people study what they were told to figure out what it means. And so Peter goes on his way still trying to figure out what all this means. And when he's now invited into Cornelius' house, he then says, now I understand uh, that, the, that God is not a respecter of persons. So he describes and tells the story of Jesus and, and demands of him, uh, proclaims to him that this is ordained by God uh, and that, uh, that's, that only through him would remissions of sins be possible for those who believe. Uh, while he was speaking, Peter had brought along some Jewish witnesses, uh, those people that were, uh, that were circumcised. He wanted to make sure that he had some other people there to watch and to see what was going on. And uh, they all were astonished when all of a sudden the Holy Spirit falls on all of those Gentiles. And those Gentiles then are speaking in tongues and they're performing miracles. And they're doing that not because uh, it, was, it was something that was for entertainment. This is something that God did. If you remember when, uh, when Elisha left and Elijah, so backwards, when Elijah left and Elisha went back across the river, uh, he performed miracles. Why? Because he needed to, to, to be certified in the eyes of the people that he was now the prophet of Israel and that God was, this was, this was a certification. These signs signified, it was like a signet ring. These signs had the purpose of, de of demonstrating the credentials and saying this, this person uh, is, is speaking on behalf of God. So the fact that, the, the fact that the, um, uh, these Gentiles all of a sudden had the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, shocked everyone. I mean, it was not something that was planned. None of the, Peter and no one else expected it. But he empowered them to speak with tongues, which, again, this is speaking in languages they don't know, not um, kind of a mumbo-jumbo thing. Uh, and he, and this, this, this was done to signify, this sign was to signify that this is God's will. So Peter commands them to be baptized. Uh, they, see what they, they see what they need to do, and he commands them. And he, but before he does that, he turns around and looks at everybody else, including the Jews, and saying, 
with all the things you've just seen, is there any reason that somebody here want to forbid them from being baptized? And nobody had anything to say. So let's figure out about what we're talking about with, um, with Cornelius as a spiritual man. He and his entire household were described as being devout and God-fearing. God-fearing is a, is a term that many times is the same thing as being a proselyte. But there's a big argument between people who, I don't know, who are all arguing about it for very minor reasons to say he either was a proselyte or he was not. But God-fearing is one of those things that describes. There were more than one type of proselyte. There were those that were called gate proselytes, which meant they, uh, they behaved themselves a certain way in the Jewish culture, and they could be merchants, they could be whatever, but they really didn't uh, throw themselves into the Jewish uh, at all into the faith. They just were moral, they were ethical, based upon the laws of the land, but not for religious reasons. There also, among others, were some that were called righteous, uh, righteous proselytes. And they were ones who would, who would, in effect, would become a Jew in all aspects. In circumcision and following all the laws, all the traditions, uh, they, would, they would do everything that a Jew would do, and then they were considered to be a different, uh, a different caliber or a different station within the um, uh, within the, um, uh, the society. He prayed to God regularly. And again, one of the arguments about him being a proselyte is, is that uh, the comment that he was praying at, at, at 3 o'clock was a prescribed time that Jews would pray. And so they said this is one of the reasons, one of the arguments why they also think he was a proselyte. Uh, he gave generously to those who were in need, and he treated everyone fairly and just. He was also a man that was not a respecter of persons. He was not someone that, based on his position, he looked down on people or that he flouted his, his power, his authority, uh, and, and, and treated others as, as uh, underlings or as useless. Uh, he was fair. He was visited by an angel. He was afraid, but he listened to the angel and he did whatever the angel commanded him. Uh, his prayers are described as pleasing God, and they come up to him uh, as a memorial offering. If you uh, remember back in some of the, um, some of the, of the uh, judges, when the, God is writing about the rebellious people who are going through the motions of worship, and yet they were just going through the motions. And God described the incense as, some, as something that stinks in his nostrils. It smells the same, but the fact that the, the heart of the people were not behind it, it made the, this was repugnant uh, to, to God. Uh, he was humble, as we talked about. He was obedient when he, when, as someone who understands how to deal with superior, um, someone who's superior. And then he was certified by the Holy Spirit. So we come back to, to this passage, uh, and we say, we see here that we are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. So we have Cornelius who knows what he should do, and he's doing those things. They're all good things. But he doesn't know what he doesn't know. He doesn't know what he lacks. Um, he lacks the, the fact that he must believe and submit to Christ. No one had, had preached to him Christ, apparently. He still needed to be saved. He needed to obey. And goodness, doing good things, being ethical, being moral, uh, was not sufficient uh, for be, to be saved for him and his house. It's interesting to, to hear uh, so, so um, to have to put together 
so much about something that we, we see so very little. The Acts, uh, Acts 10 is really the only place where we see Cornelius. There's speculation that there may be, uh, an, as other centurions are identified, that they begin to think that that's Cornelius. There's nothing that would suggest uh, that at all. Looking back on, on the, the admonition that we have, uh, if, if there are those who, uh, whose lives are such that they are being religious and yet they're not being faithful, if, they're, if, if we find ourselves in a, in a spot where we are going through the motions because we've always done it this way, uh, we've always, for the last three or four generations, we've been members of the church, uh, and yet we find ourselves hollow, and we find ourselves going through motions without any spiritual uh, commitment. We find ourselves in the same situation as Cornelius, of someone who is not offering worship to simply going through the motion of doing good things without considering God. If there's anything that we can do for you as we sing this song, please come forward and we'll be happy to help.